0: As Hero crests the pass on his motorcycle at five in the morning, the town of Port Sherman, Oregon is suddenly laid out before him, a flash of yellow low glow wrapped into a vast U-shaped valley that was ground out of the rock a long time ago by a big tongue of ice in an epical period of geological cunnilingus. There is just a light dusting of gold around the edges where it fades into the rainforest, thickening and intensifying as it approaches the harbor. A long, narrow, fjord-like notch cut into the straight coastline of Oregon. A deep, cold trench of black water heading straight out to Japan. Heroes back on the rim again. Feels good after that night ride through the sticks. Too many rednecks, too many Mounties. I have a theory, Chris, that I can always make you laugh if I can, like, tell you a story or throw an accent or something like that at you. But you can't be expecting it. It only works if it's a surprise. So if I start, if I start, get, like, give you, like, you know, like, I can be like, "So, did you rest in the Berkabiner? And I know that you're gonna laugh every time. But if you know that I'm gearing up to say "Troy glyceroids it's just not gonna be as funny the second time around.
1: That's true, but, like, I mean, the triglycerides thing is so good that, uh, you know, I mean, I could, you know, may- maybe that's the title of our new podcast is Triglycerides with Jesse and Chris. And all it is is us batting the word triglycerides. <laughs>
0: triglycerides. Like, <laughs> which? Triglycerides. <laughs> could, would you indulge me and allow me to tell our listener the, tri- the triglycerides story? Absolutely. I am curious, is this the anecdote that you
1: were thinking of that you put in the rundown?
0: Yes. Ah, okay. Yes. Yes, and that's why I was watching Lord Robertson before we became, it was a kind of like cramming a Scottish accent into my brain. You're naturally better at it than I am, but sometimes I can get there. I'd say that yours is
1: frightfully on point tonight. I keep slipping into some sort of Celtish barbarian.
0: Sort of of an Ulster Scot. A Scot that traveled with Chichester across the Irish Sea to Ulster and became an Irish, Scots Irish person and later that's, descended. That's no
1: Scot at all.
0: That's <laughs> no Scot at all. Uh, all right, so, real quick, listener, um, our mutual friend, and by the way, I think we should keep his last name anonymous because part of the story involves his diet. Um, he can decide if he, if he wishes to identify himself later. Uh, our friend Justin uh, and I were hanging out recently, and uh, I just discovered the greatest word to say with a Scottish accent. Because our friend Justin's doctor told him that the levels of his
1: triglycerides were far
0: too high.
1: This does it. It makes me think that there's a there's a chance here for two the two great entries into the Scottish accent. One of which you have now. Um, identified as triglycerides, but we could also combine it with fuk, which is the other good one. His triglycerides are fucked, to be sure. And we can even toss in a little bit of, he should have ken what's coming to him, knowing that his triglycerides are fucked. He should ken that he must bring them down Or nay. Nay, nee, had nay nee idea, but he rightfully should have.
0: Didn't I know what he's think? Uh, didn't I know what he's thinking? Diné, di, that that one's a hard one?
1: Didn't did did is. I that, nee. That's where understanding it's, the did is fine. Yeah.
0: It's getting to how would you would say no? I know how Australians say no, which is you, nah, but I don't know really how Scots say no. Didn't no. I know? Well, that's uh, why you say ken. It's easier to say ken. A ken. Yeah. Right, because you're
1: you're bumping into Diné-Né and said, and then you're just going to go with Diné-Ken. Yeah.
0: And, um, and pretty quickly, no one from England can understand you, which is the whole point. Right. Well, why would you want those bastards to understand you anyway? No, Scott needs an Englishman to understand a word, he says.
1: Uh, there's all these wonderful and horrible um, sort of British opinions of the Australian language about how it's like the worst corruption of the English accent of all time. It's it just so classic British Empire where they're splitting like the finest of hairs into um, into
0: these other tiny little hairs where you're like, oh, my God, guys, get over yourselves. As amusing as I as much fun as I have trying to sound like I'm doing a Scottish accent, any Scots would see right through, you know, like it's it, it, mine would not pass on the British yeah. Isles. I could maybe yeah, mine, try it either.
1: Again, the, the real the real way in is is train spotting the novel, mm. uh, which is just such. It's I mean the fact that it's written in vernacular makes it just so much easier, um, and it's uh, it's really helpful. Well, and so we that's, also that's, I would suggest that one.
0: It's a, yeah, and I need to read it. We, the other day we were talking, and we also, if this podcast continues, I would love to read some Robert Louis Stevenson, who also write wrote in Scottish dialect. In what did the 1890s or something? We, we looked it up around the turn of the 20th century. Um, then we'll get next week in Scottish literature. Next week <laughs> in clear. Scottish literature. I still wish that they, hopefully, there's some Scottish uh, listeners who are like, I, th- I didn't understand what's so <laughs> funny about triglycerides. <laughs> it's not laughing matter. Huh?
1: And the best part about the way you're saying it is like it's verging into like this other form of steroid. <laughs> like, troy glycerides. Yeah, yeah, there's like a whole bunch of Scots who are like, Oi, I've got to get my hands on that. <laughs> Whatever these triglycerides are, let's go find some and do them. And do
0: them. <laughs> Careful, I hear oh. you get troy rage don't make you fey and berserk <laughs> but your
1: triceps are huge <laughs> your triceps yeah listeners um welcome back to uh episode 1 s- part 2
0: okay if that's of, how you that's how you want yeah, to say yeah
1: episode 1 part 2 of upper middle brow our show uh where we occupy um, the upper middle tranche of the middle brow of culture. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Wait, can wait,
0: wait, wait. Can it be like a journal? Can this be volume one, episode two? Since we're upper middle brow. Perfect. All right,
1: done. I was I was explaining uh, this show to my therapist right before we got on to record uh, the first time, um, and. Uh, just sort of walked him through like, okay, well, do you know that how no one in the United States wants to be upper class or lower class anymore? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, well, are you also familiar with the, like, you know, speaking of hair splitting, um, just like splitting up everything. Like you very nicely put last week, uh, there's upper, upper middle class, and there's lower, upper middle class, and there's upper, lower middle class. Um, And uh, so I was kind of walking him through, Okay, well, then there's also lowbrow and highbrow and nobody wants to be lowbrow or highbrow anymore. Um, I think particularly the authors that and the creators that you and I are going to talk about um, who would prefer to occupy the upper middle brow. Right. um, Which then leads into all sorts of wonderful facial jokes. Where is the upper middle brow? If we are talking
0: from a uh, strictly biological point of view. It's true. Oh, I believe that I believe the term goes back to back to the eugenics movement, like highbrow and lowbrow. That that uh, which is not. It has come oh, to me. God! <laughs> really? Sorry, I, I'm not endorsing <laughs> that view of it. I'm just saying that metaphors <laughs> begin in terrible places sometimes
1: i did not know that i did not know that was the source of uh of highbrow
0: and lowbrow Yeah, people with people with higher eyebrows were thought to be more intelligent than people with lower eyebrows i I think i think you could fact check me but i i'm reasonably confident that's true
1: i mean you're 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 pretty good with your uh with your your you know um with those kinds of facts yeah but i will also just make them up sometimes um Uh, I mean, as we all hearken for the pre-internet days when bullshitting was a lot more fun, which is something I remember you and I have talked about that before.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, it was interesting because you mentioned Robert Jordan the other day we were having an administrative meeting and I was like I think that's a little too lower middle brow for me um I don't know that I ever want to read Robert Jordan's books again although I did very much enjoy the first one I will say um but I just I feel like I have only so many hours of my life left and I just don't know if I want to give Robert Jordan very many of those hours um Um, you know whereas like we've talked about writers like You know, uh, Patrick O'Brien or even someone like Michael Chabon, you know, who is considered sort of a literary writer, but I think is accessible to me. It's high craft plus accessibility equals upper middle brow.
1: I like that. I think that's a good. Uh, I think that's a good definition. And hopefully, our listeners will have sat through the last ten minutes of us getting <laughs> to the definition of the show. But that's uh, well. Hopefully, that's they sat through the last
0: episode and they know what it's all about already. Anyway, too. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah so, um, okay, Snow Crash. Um, the second half of the book. Uh, do like we're gonna do we're gonna do it once again. Uh, our very quick. Plot recap. Um, you, you went off you went first last time. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and and I don't know. Um I'm gonna do like the first five or six chapters from the second half of the book. Um f- like we start the second half of the book in the first different narrator that we've had for like the whole time. When we get YT's mom working in Fedland and going through polygraph tests. Um, this then shifts to this whole second half of the book. I'm going to call the action sequence, uh, because that really is what happens. Um, a hero is on his way to try to get on board the raft where El Bob Reif, the enemy of our story is attempting to unleash, um, undo the tower of Babel. Uh, so everybody speaks the same language. And so he can af- infect the entire world with his metavirus and basically become King of Kings. Uh, so hero needs to get up to Oregon. Um, I love reading this book now having been a resident of Oregon and then like comparing that to like what Chris's I, what 14 year old Chris's idea of Oregon was like um, and um, and actually like 14-year-old Chris's idea of Oregon, and I know Neil Stevenson has spent some time in the Northwest. They're actually pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, we get uh, Hero uh, chops the head off of a uh, racist... Member of the New South Africa uh Burb Clave.
0: As far as we know, the first time Hero has committed an actual act of violence in reality in his life. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, And I love that I love this moment where it's like, and Hero cuts his head off. Paragraph. (laughs) Paragraph break. What else was he supposed to do? (laughs) Um and then uh let's see, the section that I'm gonna Kick it back over to you. Uh, Y.T. has to make a delivery to Fedland, uh, where she is, where she knocks out an amazing number of federal agents, um, and then at the very last second is um, knocked out and abducted through the use of a weapon called a stun bunny. Um, through one of my favorite passages in the book. Um, but I will pass it back over to you uh, picking things up around Chapter 42 or 43 as hero arrives in Port Sherman.
0: Sure. Um, and I spent a, a fair amount of time trying to figure out what where Port Sherman is. Uh, because as far as I can tell, there is no such thing as Port Sh- uh, Sherman, but he describes the harbor as a fjord. and I was looking I spent you know probably like a half hour looking at the like uh, Google Earth. Of the Oregon coast, seeing if I could find anything. The only thing that came close was like um, uh, 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 something near Historia, but I don't. I feel like it's supposed to be farther south than then I I thought, and maybe that real Port Sherman is actually in Washington. But um, also, by the way, that Fed chapter I want to talk about. Uh I I think maybe my favorite chapter of the second half and the last in my view like really great chapter of the book. But um okay, so Hero goes to this sleepy little coastal town that is kind of swarming with Russian Orthodox immigrants and some mafia folks. There's some melee happening. The other thing is you talked about the head chopping. There was an exposition scene where Hero interviewed some like former president of a breakaway state in oregon um and got a very scary story about raven stealing a uh nuclear sub which he in partnership with like like a former kgb officer murdering like half the people in the ship and we learned that he has glass knives Um, and essentially bringing that ship and allying with both El Bob Reif and also these Russian Orthodox XKGB types who are just bad dudes. Um, So there's some kind of conflagration at the Port Sherman docks. Hero's able to talk his way onto the dock. He's trying to hire a yacht. It turns out the mafia has got there first and our old friend Fisheye, um, who we've met in an earlier chapter is there orchestrating some military action against these Russian Orthodox people in the hope that he can take them captive. It looks like he's going to succeed, but Raven shows up on a kayak in the last moment and foils his plans, and then a submarine shows up, sinks the yacht, and strands hero fisheye and a few other people in the cold chilly waters off oregon in a lifeboat meanwhile uh, why White... elliot chung and Vic. yeah elliot... Elliot... <laughs> elliot i forgot elliot chung's name the captain of the boat who is a chinese a filipino man who according to neil stevenson talks like a african-american from um la um and at the same time, YT is sort of like ends up in a van with sort of culty L. Rife followers. Um, and eventually ends up on the raft where she's kind of forced to do menial labor, um, under the supervision of a bunch of, um, Russian Orthodox women. And I'll kick it back to you.
1: Yeah. Um, that, uh, section of YT's story takes a, a real turn when, uh, Raven uh Raven shows up in the cafeteria where YT has now been assigned to be a uh, a cafeteria dame. Um and Raven uh takes her on a date um to a uh a restaurant where she tries to order a cheeseburger and he says there's no beef out here and she says anything but fish and he orders her squid. A gentleman, as she says. <laughs> yeah. A gentleman, yeah, the last of the seafaring yeah, gentlemen she... of his kind. Uh, Raven leaves the date to go and kill almost everybody on the boat that uh, Hero and Elliot and Fisheye and Vic have gotten onto. After, after killing Bruce Lee the pirate, again, just, just trying to come up with a synopsis for this book um is uh is banana they, they yes they have taken over a fishing trawler from a pirate who goes by the name of bruce lee who is supposed to have made a jacket out of the scalps of red and silver haired refugees yeah. that live on the raft and hero at one point notes oh there's no way it's too uniformly colored that guy must have just taken a whole bunch of scalps and just dyed them all the same yeah he's a
0: He's a chump. He didn't, he didn't actually yeah, seek out the pre-colored scalps. He, he dyed scalps that he already had. After a certain amount of rape humor, I'll add, too. There was, a, there was like several thousand words worth of rape humor in the middle of all that.
1: Yeah, I know we're going to talk about moments where this book hasn't yeah. aged well. Yeah, the
0: rape humor would that be on that list. Is one of them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, fisheye's line, wait a second, these guys are homos? um which you're like oh come on
0: yeah yeah and no and and uh the the captain says no no no, they're het, but they'll really go after anything uh warm and concave I will I will say that fisheye is understood to be being illiberal in that moment like uh, yeah he, that 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 that's not supposed to you know that 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 that's part of fisheye's sort of um chauvinism is that he's being he's being a bit intolerant in that yeah. moment.
1: Uh, yeah, Elliot. Elliot has a great line where he's like, "He didn't even bat an eye when we yeah. talked about the scalps." <laughs> You're like, mm, right? Yeah, um, you know. So effective character drawing, Mister Stevenson. But it was it was the early '90s. Um, so let's see. Um, I'm gonna try to. It turns into a fetch quest. Um, Hero gets into a whole bunch of different fights with different members of uh, the raft. Um, in one at one point engaging the ship-to-ship guns of the USS Enterprise himself uh, with this uh, little Gatling gun that he has uh, procured from Fisheye called Reason. A,
0: a, uh, a rail gun that fires spent uranium pellets at, at hypersonic speeds.
1: Um, and at one point during this, he is able to goggle into the metaverse to speak with uh, YT... Um, Uncle Enzo, the head of the mafia, Mr. Ng, um the arms dealer, uh, and Mr. Lee, the head of Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong. Um, and I will kick it back on over to you.
0: And and in that chapter, we get a chapter that is basically just like, Were you paying attention to all the exposition before? If not, here are the here's the cliff notes. And and it's it's I mean, it is almost audaciously just a pure exposition chapter and it uh, it it but the the premise the conceit is that hero is explaining all of this to uncle Enzo uh, mr. Lee mr. Ng um, so that gives him an excuse to do exposition and that he's also getting paid to do so as well um, but we get I'm not gonna go into it now but basically we get the whole sort of explanation of how the virus works uh, how the uh, deep structures of the brain works, the Namshub of Enki, all these other things. I think the thing we really most need to understand is that Elbob Bob Reif has a way of controlling people's brains um, and that Hero believes he can stop that uh, using the Namshub of Enki and that he starts questing after that while kind of maintaining contact through the metaverse with YT. YT after a terrible series of events with Raven that I believe Stevenson thinks is supposed to be funny, has incapacitated uh, Raven and is jacked in and uh, to the metaverse and trying to help Hero, but she's captured um, and then brought to El Bob Reif to be used as a hostage. And that really kind of sets up this endgame series of chapters where El Bob Reif is flying to the United States. I don't quite know what he's... Going to do in America, to be honest. I haven't quite figured that out. Raven recovered from his incapacitation, has gone to the metaverse to unleash a secret weapon on a bunch of hackers who are going to be attending a conference. Hero is reunited with the love of his life, Juanita, who has been pretending to help El Bob Rife, but actually is studying this new religion and this biohacking thing and actually decides to show her true colors and help hero and that sets up the absolute final confrontation i'll also say that as they're flying back to the united states yt engages in an escalating series of nancy drew type uh behavior to foil El bob rife's plan that is very entertaining um and maybe some of my favorite um some of my favorite moments in the book um but i'll let you i'll let you finish it from there
1: yeah um the 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 crowning glory of those uh those nancy drew moments um el bob reif has a a clay envelope um that is a sumerian artifact that we learn in that lore dump of an expositional chapter is the thing that can kind of inoculate him against all of the stuff that he's trying to do if anybody were to come after him um, he would be able to, or use any of the, his
0: allies. Um, like it's a, uh, yeah.
1: um, and that's the that's the thing that hero is trying to get. He's trying to get that clay envelope. Um, and there's this wonderful moment where Y t kicks it out of the uh, of the helicopter in which she is being
0: um that she is being abducted from but she continues um, to be a thorn in El bob Reif's side
1: oh yes she certainly does the, the in fact like the thorn right like like she is and and i do i want to talk a bunch about yt yeah in this yeah. T- tonight she deserves because it. um she deserves it i also think she really got away from stevenson and became really the highlight of the book uh in a way that like sometimes that happens with authors yeah um and uh yeah. Um but uh yes, so there's this confrontation. It ends at LAX Airport um as uh El Bob Reif is trying to uh is is trying to escape. Um there is a fun uh, battle between raven and uncle enzo yeah when we discover that uncle enzo is in fact like a pretty badass
0: hand-to-hand combatant, all of which was foreshadowed in his conversation with lt uh, yt earlier
1: um and uh yeah the um the rat thing that we discussed uh early on um is in fact the tool of the final coup de grace of bringing El bob down um, as, because the rat thing, of course, has an affection for YT. Um, and as L. Bob's Rife's plane is trying to uh, fly off into the sunset, um, the rat things actually jump through the airplane, um, turning it into, you know, like a gigantic fireball, uh, ridding, uh, ridding the world of, um, of, of this villain. And I'm not sure from your question about letdown. Um, basically, rendering the last third of Snow Crash a pretty
0: pat action adventure um, novel. Yeah, I the the one to uh, so two things I think that's important to note that you missed, and one is that YT was also able to get a whole band of fellow um, delivery uh, skateboarders to uh, pull l bob Reif's helicopter out of the sky with their harpoons and then she single-handedly destroys his helicopter with a harpoon which is a wonderful moment um and then also there's a lovely scene in the metaverse where hero foils raven's attempt to um essentially poison all the infect all the hackers with snow crash and it basically involves every single eccentric hobby that hero has makes him the perfect hero for this moment because it requires, you know, motorcycle racing, uh, sword fighting, and specifically virtual Virtual, motorcycle racing. Virtual motorcycle racing. Yeah, (laughs) virtual sword fighting, hacking, uh concert promotion um and um and uh, so he is able to save the day in a way that only hero protagonists possibly could with that particular set of skills um and it is a very brilliant bit of plotting that you, that allows hero to be put in a situation where that very eccentric and you know kind of you know immature uh, set of skills proves to be just what is needed to save the world at that moment it is a real 14 year old nerd who likes sword fighting and computers fantasy um, but it's also a pretty great oh, scene yeah. and it's completely plausible and it also contains this interesting story within a story about um, you know uh, Ali Aliuts, um and uh, the end of World War Two and hero's father in a Japanese um, uh, POW camp too
1: that's right cuz we do get that scene where Hero and Raven talk to each other um as they are trying to kill each yeah. other in the metaverse. And it, and it's good and we we learn all of this backstory about about Raven um and like a lot of the characters in Stevenson's books that like there is a there is like a plausible reason for their yeah. for the things that they're doing. Um he does he does save his like true mustache twirling villains for yeah. for El bob yeah. in this one like he's he's really the only well raven is guy.
0: is is you know um behaving very badly um yeah he does have some motivations oh, yeah. but and, but he is a bit in and he's um you know he's driven mad th- by seeking vengeance and willing to kill billions of innocent people in order to have his vengeance so you know um but but an yeah, in, in interesting character too uh the and the, i guess the other thing i will add to that is like he stevenson creates the only scenario imaginable in which hero could actually best raven <laughs> you know like it's uncle enzo actually defeats raven in reality hero barely manages to defeat raven only in the Space in which hero is at his most powerful and Raven is quite a bit diminished, you know, as someone who doesn't hang out in the metaverse all the time. And yet it works. That's an I I actually liked that scene quite a bit. Yeah,
1: it's it's nice to hear them. And, and, you know, it's a it's a nice piece of like scene setting as well, because the way that Stevenson has set it up where they can talk to each other organically while they are trying to, like, kill each other in the metaverse and race these motorcycles that can basically go infinite speeds um yep. it's it's nice i mean that's one of the things about stevenson as a novelist is that his like like we can you know we, we can we can say a lot of critical things like one thing we can't say is yeah. that he's not a craftsman um just that that detail that you brought up about the fact that this is the only area in which hero um would be able to defeat raven that is set up in the second chapter right um which is pretty which is you know which is an impressive piece of craft um and for by and large he manages to keep the ball in the air even though there are these big expositional sections I do think the action-adventure part kind of gets away with them. Yeah, gets away I actually
0: thought this half um, is more boring than the first half. I, I don't... it the the I mean, and I would say the first couple of times I read this book, I was completely entertained by the second half. But this time, I kind of knew what was going to happen. And the moments that you and I found so profound... Um, in the first half they are more few and far between i thought i thought the race what we're describing the dialogue between raven and hero was one of those moments um i definitely think the chapter with the toilet paper memo narrated by yt's mom is definitely one of those moments just maybe you know, one of the best chapters in the entire book, and you know, I, there, I'm there. I would have some criticisms of Stevenson's politics because I feel like what he's criticizing about government culture, you could, you know, I, it's bureaucratic corporate culture, is every bit, if not more, egregious in certain respects. But, um, I yeah, I found those moments were fewer and farther between, and there was just. You know, it's it's really more... It's like he spends half of the book building the chessboard and putting the chess pieces on the board, and then the rest is just having them all fight, you know? And, and if you read a lot of Stevenson's books, they're kind of like that, where, like, the last half or the last third, even some of the new ones that I think are actually great books, often the last half or the last third is, like, this adventure story. Now that we've kind of explained what the parameters of the world are, and um, you know, I was there for that the first time I read it, and the second time. But now, this read, uh, knowing what ha- was knowing, I already sort of knew the plot. It just wasn't quite as fun to read as the first half. I I thought.
1: Yeah, you. There are fewer. There are fewer surprising moments. Um, it it is all like you know the 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 prose, the prose never loses steam. Um, There are, you know, still brilliant sentence after brilliant sentence, even if we're describing things like the holes that Reason, the railgun makes in the size of the Enterprise. Um, But there's there's just not enough of it's funny. Like Stevenson, there's like three writers. There's this like. There's this like very intelligent, like, oh, I wanna I wanna cram a bunch of ideas in here. And then there's this kind of freewheeling action action adventure guy. Um and then I think there are like those moments with like YT's mom and YT and the rat thing. Oh, I was wrong. That is the other moment of of another narrator that we get because we do have that chapter where the rat thing the, the rat thing narrates. Which is great. I love I love I love the rat thing chapters. Yeah, they're marvelous. And And those are, I think, like, that's what actually gives this book its life. Um, It's like the old James Merrill thing about like, oh, you forgot to put the emotion in. Go back upstairs and keep writing until you've actually put some emotion in here. And I think that those characters and those moments, because the rat thing is so loving. It's just this like simple, loving creature that's like, there are bad men doing bad things. And it is my job to do bad things to those bad men um, because I want to protect that nice girl. That was very nice to me. Um, And, and then, yeah. And YT's mom, who is this just very kind of tragic figure as she tries to get through to the people, putting her through a horrible polygraph test where she really makes an appeal to them to just talk and the answer is to basically sedate her
0: yeah no and, and yt's mom is a tragic character and sort of sad and 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 you know there are a couple moments where it's clear that yt is aware of that and actually has a deep well of concern and affection for her mom although you know a lot of the times you're not aware of that because it's not what she's thinking about she's thinking about like how she's gonna like what's the one-liner she's gonna throw at whatever like asshole dude is like giving her hassle at any given moment or like how she's gonna escape a situation or like who she wants to sleep with um or um but well yeah i mean maybe talking about yt i asked you this last time my question for you is, is there any reason why T couldn't be 19 or 20? Which would solve a couple of the really icky moments.
1: I thought about this and the, the, the one that popped into my head, and I'm, I'm layering uh, 1990s and early aughts kind of like way of thinking about this. Um, it's the best way to keep her in the house
0: with her mom. Eh, She could be like, a yeah, but she could be like taking classes at a community college and still living with her mom or something like that. You know, like a lot of people live with their parents, particularly you can imagine it in this dystopian future where, you you know, life is hard. Um, I mean, I think that's possibly it. I mean, but I mean, just to come out and say it like, you know, not only does YT have what is represented as a consensual sexual relationship with uh Raven and we, we we're already given to understand that YT is sexually active and has sex with her boyfriend but her boyfriend seems to be roughly her age so that seems less icky um and that she kind of has maybe a little bit of a crush on hero and it's like all right well she's 15 but hero doesn't pursue that so that all just seems kind of normal but then yeah YT and Raven have sex and it's described from Yt's perspective. In a way that it's just like, I know, I know that 15 year olds do have sex, but I don't think it's appropriate for adults to talk about it. I don't want to hear about it. I don't think it's sexy. I don't think it's funny. I think it's just, uh, and and I would just, I wish that scene wasn't in there. Yeah, it's,
1: it's there's no good way to make this scene like anything other than the ickiness that it is other than, as you said, like for God's sakes, why couldn't we have made her 19?
0: Yeah. And, and even then it would be a little bit icky, but like, um, and, and, and just, I described in a way that would make me a little bit uncomfortable, but the other, I mean, the thing I think about, you know, that I don't know if you've ever read, but there is these memos between George Lucas and Steven Spielberg about Marianne's character and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, you know the the woman who's the love interest in the first movie and it's implied that she and Indy had been lovers several years before and she's supposed to be in her mid 20s he's in his mid 30s so if you do the math apparently they were lovers when he was 25 and she was like 14 or 15 or something like that which like you don't really do the math if you're watching that movie and her age is never explained so in the movie it's not that bad but if you read the memos back and forth they're talking about like yeah let's say that they were lovers maybe when she was 19 and he was like 25 and then one of them i think it's lucas is like no make it make it 15 let's make it edgy you know like let's let's make let's make the the audience like not sure how they feel about it and i I just think that there was in an earlier era there was a certain kind of man especially that equated sort of things like statutory rape and social norms about sex between adult males and teenage girls as prudish. Like as the restrictions on that were prudish in the same way that the people trying to make abortion illegal were being prudes. They were just anti sex. They're just trying to control. And so that like if you were with it and you weren't a prude, who cares if a twenty five year old man has sex with it? it's just edgy. You know, and it's like, no, it's not edgy. It is fucked up. You know? And and I'm sure I mean I would imagine that Stevenson has matured to the point where he would never do write something like this you know um you know he was in his early 30s and he should have known better then but i I'm, i would put it down to immaturity and also a kind of terrible blind spot of the era
1: yeah of the of, of that particular moment in history for sure yeah. like that is a um yeah uh, i it's I, I i do i do wish there were a way to like just change the age you know, because it would be, it would make things um, a lot, uh, a lot less icky.
0: Yeah, you know what you could do is uh, go into your book, and every time it says fifteen, strike through and write nineteen. Nineteen. Maybe Stevenson <laughs> could tweet it out. Uh, YT, hey everybody. Yt is now nineteen.
1: <laughs> that would be awesome. What what a what a glorious moment of like authorial like uh, Neil Stevenson, if you're listening. Um, do that I would support it
0: I would support it that would be a wonderful edit yes this podcast would uh this podcast says says do it yeah yeah well we all make mistakes Um, but that was a pretty bad one
1: yeah it's a pretty bad one um but I I, the, the the thing I do love about this second half of this book is the way that the way that YT does become more central to the action um in a more interesting way than hero yeah um, I think that as the book goes on, Hero continues to be sort of the author stand-in, um, like you know Stevenson's sort of idea of himself as this. I mean, there's that there's that uh, there's that passage, I think from the first half of the book, where um, it says you know for a certain amount of time up until he's at his late twenties, a man every man imagines that he could become this kind of badass. Yeah, and I'm like Neil Stevenson this is your paragraph. Yes. This is you right now. And and in the book, it's hero comparing himself to Raven. And in real life, I would think it's Stevenson's comparing himself to hero, um, wanting to be hero. And so hero kind of does the dutiful heroic things that we would expect of our protagonist, uh, which is to complete the fetch quest and triumph over the villain Um, but really, Y.T. gets all the fun parts.
0: Yeah, and I will say that, I mean, Hero, I think there's a moment when he cuts the head off of the racist person, and and then also later on the boat when he's the only survivor, and also I believe it's a little bit confusing, but I believe they actually destroy the fishing trawler, Bruce Lee's fishing trawler, but take the yacht, and they take the yacht... To the raft, at which point they are attacked, and Hero is the only survivor of that attack, except for the cabin boy uh, Transubstantion. Um, tranny for short. Another uh, another unfortunate <laughs> joke, uh! <laughs> a little bit of a transphobic joke. Neil, my um, God,
1: it's like you're like, oh, there are these moments where you're like. Dude.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's bad. Um. So, but Hero's the only survive adult survivor, and I think there is supposed to be this sort of like moment where all these things he's fantasized about at, at, or practice in the metaverse are coming true, and he proves capable in that moment. And I do think like you buy it. I don't know why. Yeah. You know, but you buy it, and he's wearing bulletproof vests and he has swords, and like you're kind of like, yeah, I suppose that if you had that Gatling gun and a bulletproof vest and you were logged into the metaverse and had a map you maybe you could fight your way to the enterprise especially since everybody else is like not as well armed not as well equipped and brainwashed and kind of stupid um and doesn't even really understand what the end game is you know like maybe yeah maybe you could do that so it all seems kind of plausible and it's sort of fun but then yeah yt is um and especially after there's also a moment where you know she decides that um it seems like she's also kind of scared of Raven, and there's a moment where she decides to just defy him too. And that's like a, a moment that must take some courage, because he is a terrifying mm-hmm. person too. And so um but yeah, her she just has this infinite reserve of scrappiness. Um and it, it, it uh it wins the day. And she's yeah. incredibly resourceful and she's also you know i'm sure she's her character is understood to be scared but has this instinct that whenever particularly like a grown-up scary male tries to intimidate her her response is to is to like sass right back at them that's what she does and like that can be very very dangerous but she 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 sticks to that and in the end like that capacity her capacity she's just and she also has this insight she figures out that she's a hostage and she figures out that she's only good as a hostage if she's alive and so she actually has a certain amount of power in the situation because they can't hurt her too much um mm-hmm. or else she becomes a useless hostage and she figures which out. is
1: what's the moment where she leaps out of the helicopter right yeah right which is awesome
0: yeah but there's a whole sequence of things she does to foil El Bob Reif. And you, know, and, you know, the mafia and Mr. Ng and Mr. Lee are all trying. You know, they have plans that they're cooking up. And those plans prove to be completely unnecessary. Like like yeah. YT does all the work. Uh, yeah, Uncle, she, she, Uncle Enzo gets to, you know, kick uh, Raven's ass, which is pretty great. But That is a great moment.
1: But, yeah, I mean, like, she's, I mean, Hero, I think the point I was trying to make is, like, the whole action adventure section is plausible and it, it it works and it's fine. And and the set pieces are great. Yeah. I mean, those moments when like ships are turning into fireballs yeah. and he describes that for a moment you can you can see and like the, the image of like a fireball and there's that strobe light effect, and Hero notices that there's just ships
0: everywhere trying to like board their ship. Like rats when you turn your your yeah. the light on in your kitchen yeah <laughs> wonderful
1: and and so i mean it never it, the the narration never flags yeah. like it is very good action writing but from a character perspective you know there's not a ton of change that happens for hero yeah sure he he sort of realizes that he can pull it off and he can win the day um you know uh, Juanita is sort of uh, yeah I'm not crazy it it doesn't really pass the Bechdel test yeah Um, Juanita exists as this kind of like somewhat distant female figure for hero to aspire to
0: yeah Um, and, and also like you know I don't know I mean I in the last taping we did I said that you know hero was becoming a better more mature person and that's why Juanita likes him now and maybe that's true But, like, it is a little bit, like, he just shows up and we're meant to understand that their romance is rekindled again. And I I guess it is incredibly romantic that he would show up on the raft trying to rescue her, like, with his samurai swords and bulletproof black motorcycle outfit. Like, that's kind of badass, you know, so maybe that's part of it. And he has, I mean... I. He has figured out all the Shub stuff he but that's basically he just did the homework that she assigned him you know he just had the the robot Butler like explain it all to him
1: and and YT does have that great moment where where hero and YT are talking about Juanita yeah and hero's like I think it's going really well like I think that like I think that I'm finally getting to understand her and YT is like you're an idiot what <laughs> she wants is she wants you to understand yourself. Mm. And, like you get the sense that hero's like oh okay <laughs> and it's I mean like the book leaves those like more truth those truthy <laughs> things to YT yeah um, which I which I just I just love like she is sort of the canniest character um in this book that is mostly populated by like dudes who
0: are ostensibly with power right. Right. YT is an excellent, with one exception, an excellent judge of character, you know, that, um... Which, you know,
1: like, I'm not crazy about that chapter and that setup. It is, as a piece of character crafting, I think it's an important, you know, it's an important moment of, like, making your characters not consistent. hmm. You know, like, I wish he would have picked a different way to achieve that, maybe. Um, but, uh... But no, I yeah, mean, I guess
0: it's good that she faltered in some way and that she, you know, that 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 makes her more interesting character, too. Um, yeah, uh, um,
1: I, I wanted to. There is one uh, there's one part that I really wanted to uh, to talk about. It's the end of the chapter where Hero cuts the uh, the guy from New South Africa's head off. Yeah. Um, and then is pursued through this particular burb clave. Um, by these um, racists from New South Africa uh, and the enforcers, and um, the chapter ends with uh, Hero getting onto his motorcycle and the New South Africans getting into their cars and the enforcers getting into their vehicles. And the last sentence of the, of the, the chapter is, and after that, it's just a chase scene. I, I have, I have. So and then when you put that against the next chapter which is YT and Fedland, one long chase scene. Yeah. It I I it brings up the I'm like, okay, what what's going on here? Is this another joke? Um is this uh Stevenson acknowledging the fact that he's about to do a whole bunch of action stuff and being like, "You know what? It's not important, reader, and I'm just going to tell you
0: that it's just a plot device and we're going to skip it." Uh interesting question i mean so i have three responses to that so response one is i think part of it is that we there's been a lot of foreshadowing build-up about hero's motorcycle um such and such that i think basically part of what that is saying is getting to the motorcycle is the same as escaping because his motorcycle is just so much faster and better equipped than anything a bunch of like rednecks in like the alc, the greater alcan, which is what the roads in oregon are meant to be like uh the sort of like alaskan diaspora are um are are likely to have so i think it it, and it's it's supposed to reflect like a little bit of hero's cockiness in that situation too like you know yeah, once I'm on the motorbike, it's just a chase scene, and I'm going to win any chase scene. Like, I, I think there's an <laughs> element of that going on. Two, though, I do think, you know, if you pair that with uh, YT's chapter, and then if you pair it with the other excellent chase scene, which is the virtual motorcycle race... Between Hero and uh, uh, Raven in the metaverse, where they're talking to each other, and Hero's trying to cut Raven's head off, and Raven's trying to kill every hacker in the world. Um, both of those are better chase scenes. So maybe there is a way in which Stevenson's saying, like, yeah, after that's just a pretty boring chase scene, you know, I've got some better chase scenes in mind coming up soon. But then my third answer to your question is that i actually think that i think the craft of the first five or six or seven chapters of this book is just impeccable just and we talked about it last time like why do we have the uh pizza deliverator chapter why teen hero could meet some other way the plot doesn't really start until david you know gets the virus uh and raven shows up at the concert so why do we have these other chapters and why you know when those early chapters are happening in in the at the concert and in the metaverse we're also still following yt six weeks earlier i think all of that is brilliant it's setting the hook it's doing exposition it's balancing exposition with action i think that like in this second half and really about where we started reading There, the some of the choices about where to linger in the world and where to drive the plot just seemed kind of random to me Like why do we need to be on the life raft for like 10,000 pages, you know five
1: five to seven chapters? Yeah, it's a long time
0: and as far as I can tell the only thing that happens to drive the plot later apart from learning about reason which we um is hero spends a little bit of time hacking which proves useful later but uh it, but yeah, that's when he creates snow scam he creates snow scam but that could have happened another time right like he could have done that in a cheap hotel in port sherman you know or something like that or he could have even done that on the raft you know um they that the point of the lifeboat is to get us to the raft you could have had that boat not sink and go to the raft the mafia could have flown a helicopter to the raft and dropped hero with a parachute into the raft you could have had a submarine go to the raft mr ng could have come up with some way to get hero to the raft i mean there's so many ways and it's just like and you know we i think i mean I, I the only answer I have is that Stevenson was having a lot of fun putting those characters on a raft and creating this like almost like waiting for gateau like interlude like in the middle of the book. and then which ends with the pirate Bruce Lee showing up, which is both horrifying, inappropriate, and very entertaining all at the same time. But I, I, I guess I feel like the plotting is a little bit clumsy and that one of the things that gets a little bit clumsier and maybe because it can, Because he's got you at that point. So might as well just have fun with this world. But is the decision of when to drive the plot forward quickly and when to just like linger, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't need to spend five or six chapters on the lifeboat for the sake of the plot
1: no it's and i think you're totally right i think you i think you nailed it that it's like he's having fun and you know and and, and to, at a certain point in heavily plotted novels like this is the corner that you paint yourself into is like um i mean imagine poor tom clancy poor guy <laughs> I, was, I, was hoping for, I was hoping for a reaction from you. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I mean, I would hate... Well, uh, I don't know. Um,
1: he ri- certainly doesn't count his upper middle brow.
0: No, he does not. Um, <laughs> he's, not. he's also
1: not poor. Um, <laughs> True. Um, but, 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 you know, when we're talking about heavily plotted things, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, like all sorts of authors struggle with this. It's like, how do you land the goddamn plane when you know you have all of these things sort of up in the air it's what i mean it is what i think lifts this book into success even though you're right the i like my sense of the world gets a little foggier in the second half of the book um which should never happen yeah like it should not get sketchier and a little bit more because it just does get too plot focused um but I do think you know the 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 plane that Stevenson is trying to land is, and I put this in like my second comment here, is like this book does really feel very prescient mm. in terms of the fact that what hero is working against is a monoculture. Yeah, um, and th- we are. I mean, it's funny. It feels like in our current world moment, we are fracturing into hundreds of tiny monocultures. Mm um which is not good because those monocultures sort of just you know they just uh babble to themselves and um and it's just there's just so it does feel very um anticipatory um i mean gosh he even he even came up with google earth you know a decade before google earth yeah um so there are you know i like i think as a novel of ideas and action it's really hard. He's trying to bolt those two things together and generally comes out successful.
0: Well, and yeah, I know no Google Earth is brilliant. Um I mean Earth, which Earth, we became Earth. Google Earth. And and it's actually like, you know, Google based Google Earth on Earth. Like that that's very yeah. conscious. And and I believe Meta, the new name of Facebook, was named after the Metaverse. And I think that also I mean we haven't really reached the metaverse yet but hero sorry uh, stevenson was very prescient imagining how people would want to use the internet uh, to create other cultural realities and to create communities that were more appealing than whatever world was happening outside around them and that that would be both brilliant and wonderful and also dangerous and the metaverse is not altogether bad or altogether Good, you know. I do think it's very smart that uh Stevenson insists on referring to reality as reality with a capital R. Um and there is I do think there is a sense that people who lose their sense of reality uh in this novel, both in the sense of maybe being too enamored with the metaverse, but also, you know, falling into the El Bob Rife speaking in tongues, viral religion, um, that that is the most dangerous thing that could happen to you, you know, to kind of lose mm-hmm. your sense of yourself and lose your sense of reality. You know, the last time I read this, not the most recent time, was several years ago when I was in Guatemala reporting on uh, evangelical Christians in Guatemala. And in particular, I was visiting this Pentecostal megachurch in Guatemala City. And it was where people uh, speak in tongues um, and do faith healing. And it was very fascinating. I was reading about the history of glossolalia and seeing it in action while reading this novel. And Stevenson, through Juanita, who is our sort of like theological wise person, takes a very dim view of Pentecostalism and charismatic religion. Stevenson does not take a dim view of religion altogether uh he he suggests through Juanita and through Hero that faith is a good thing and that religion is a good thing but that um that sort of blind obedient charismatic faith um that involves a certain degree of mysticism and being swept up into religious sort of orgy is very 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 dangerous and you know I've been doing some research and reading into this and I want to be very clear evangelical Christians are not inherently evil, you know like Martin Luther King was an evangelical Christian no, there 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 are many wonderful uh evangelical Christians out there. That said, the Pentecostal wing of the evangelicals who I also are not all evil there are wonderful pentecostal christians and people but overwhelmingly the pentecostal movement embraced donald trump uh in 2016 um and they continue to embrace him and think of him as a religious figure especially very conservative pentecostal christians too and it's a it's a cult Um, There's a cult-like devotion to Donald Trump among many, many evangelical Christians, and there's been some books about this, and Stevenson's pointing at that kind of thing, too. He's looking at how religious fanaticism, uh, religious charisma can can rewire your brain in really, really dangerous ways, such that people lose their ability to think critically, um, Mm -hmm. and then become um, controllable by tyrants, which... um, is what the, you know, the primary antagonist of this book is, is trying to do. Is hoping to become. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, and then, I mean, this, it's such a book of double entendres and like, and mirrors and, and, and equivalencies. Um, I mean, probably the central line of the book is like, wait a second. Are you telling me that snow crash is a virus, a drug or religion? Yes. And then I think Juanita says like, well, what's the difference? Um, and that's, you know, that's such a, and it's good coming from her because we've gotten the qualifying information from her before that religion and faith. Like it doesn't, you, you can't paint it with that broad a brush. Like, um, you know, like I have a number of religious friends who talk about the fact that like, yes, they understand that a lot of it is metaphor, but they still believe in a higher power. And that the world is a hard place to make sense of for them without that sense of something greater. And a lot of artists feel the same way mm-hmm. um, about this sort of enduring the sublime. Mm-hmm. Like the sublime is basically the same concept of religion, just ported over to an artistic idea. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, I mean, I think for for the for the the problems of plotting in the second half, like like the number. The number I mean, it's basically a book about the, the the fall of like the fall of man, you know, like there's this section of guns coming to paradise now that the Internet is a dangerous place. or the metaverse is a dangerous place. And it's a book that continually cycles back to this idea of Babel, um, which then he discovers is like, oh, that actually was probably a really good thing for us. Um, is this weird, bizarre digression where he say like, he posits that the metavirus is actually like floating around in space?
0: It reminds me of some plot points in later Stevenson novels where um, he he seems to think we might be living in a simulation. Uh, yeah, you know. there there are
1: some wonky, and this was one of my notes: is like there's there there are just some very wonky aspects of this book. They, they manage not to sink the book. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, every time I read it, it I, I'm still it still gets me every time. Um, I really I really love this book. I'm sure a significant portion of that is nostalgia, um, you know, to uh, to to rip off Chabon, um, uh I have probably exaggerated
0: everything. Yeah. Huh um i yeah yeah. uh, i mean it i look i have less nostalgia about it than you do and and i i mean i think the first half is just masterful and i think and i think the second half is still pretty good it's just i don't think i don't think it's quite as masterful i think i can see this and it took me it's on the third read and as somebody who's done a lot of thinking about narrative and a lot of study between now and when i first read it i'm starting to see the seams but it, yeah it is wonderful it's a wonderful book and it's and and you know I, i've identified ways where i thought in which stevenson was transphobic uh homophobic um you know uh, uh gross um there's an awful lot of winking rape humor in there that um you know that i mean i can remember finding stuff like that more funny when i was quite younger you know and just it's sort of a juvenile form of humor you're like "Uh uh-huh pirates they rape people in the butt
1: (laughs) yeah it's like it's it's like listening to a pogue's album but not getting the irony You know, uh, it's you're like, you're like, no, they aren't really into rum sodomy in the lash.
0: Well, you know where that you know where that title came from? No, it's a quote from Winston Churchill, I believe you can you can look this up. But I'm pretty sure that Winston Churchill was trying to instigate some reform or another um, in the Navy. And somebody said, oh, he couldn't do that. That would violate centuries of naval tradition. And he said something like naval tradition posh. Your naval traditions add up to rum, sodomy, and the lash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited about my trivia that I prepared for you. I mean, do you have time for that? Oh, yeah, totally. A hero observes at least twice, maybe more, but I noticed it twice, uh, that the pirate who calls himself Bruce Lee runs a tight ship. Can you describe the occasion of each of those observations? And I'll, I'll give you a hint. And I can give you a hint if you need one.
1: No, no, I think I got it. One of them is the condoms. Uh, he asks his crewmates to display to him that, in fact, he can uh, that the condoms are not. And and
0: people. and and how do we know that the? Con-
1: <laughs> they have to. They have to <laughs> blow them up like balloons. <laughs> in front of him as he is inspecting uh, them at random the, the
0: apotheosis of the rape humor these are the condoms that the pirates are going to use they think to uh rape hero and i forget the name of the other boat captain
1: the other bringing up of the tight ship is when hero and transubstantiation are navigating uh, sort of the spider web of um Neighborhoods and stuff that like comprises the raft and is all attached to each other um, And I believe it is something about the nature of the ship of the little the rowboat that they
0: are rowing itself I would have I would almost want a judge to decide whether or not to give it to you um, Trent you're, you're right. You're exactly right. Um, the level of detail though is that trans transubstance <laughs> That the boy um- uh, is able to repair uh, the motor, which has been fouled. Um, and um, it, so the Zodiac has a little motor and it stops working. So they have to row for a little bit, but then uh, the boy goes sort of fiddles with the engine for a few minutes and then he reports that it's working again and they start it up. And here, Hero says, oh yeah, Bruce Lee runs a tight ship.
1: My trivia question for you is also a little detailed. Um, in the toilet paper chapter... Uh, so this is a chapter in the, the very dead center of the book when we are getting YT's narration. Um, and the first thing that YT's mom has to do when she shows up at work that day is to read a memo that the United States of America is going to briefly try a, um, an experimental situation where federal workers are allowed to bring in toilet paper and pool it. Um, in order to uh, deal with some austerity measures that are going on at the United States of America. Uh, but but employees from other floors are not allowed to raid that particular table of the toilet paper from the toilet paper pool of that particular floor. It's a marvelous chapter. Um, there are recommendations in that memo as to how long it should take the uh, reader to read. Um, first of all, do you know what the exact recommended time is? And then secondly, um, YT's mom knows that her supervisor has a list of, uh, of actions to take, um, because all of the supervisors will monitor how long the employees take to read it. Um, uh, what is the punishment for reading the memo for the exact amount of
0: time? Uh, that the memo suggests it should be read well I don't remember what the punishment but the comment was smartass was there a punishment um, it was it needs was, attitude needs attitude counseling
1: I believe the exact time is 16 minutes and 42 seconds I don't
0: remember that I do remember that YT's mom thought about it and decided to read it slightly quickly um, because uh,
1: slightly long, uh, didn't she go slightly longer?
0: I thought she went slightly quickly because she, she was in her forties. And that she would show greater efficiency and show that she was management potential. Whereas if you were younger, you would go slightly long to show that you were diligent, detail um, uh, oriented. Of course, that's yeah. that was my recollection. But uh, no, and I'm never gonna probably ever get numbers like that. They don't stick with me. Yeah, and and of course, like part of the joke is there is no correct time. You know, like like there is no time you spent reading the memo that would get you sort of. A good evaluation everything would bring you in for some kind of punishment or criticism or monitoring
1: yeah yeah nobody nobody wins in the future united states oh, of man. america
0: you know and it's like one I'll, another observation about that i'll make is that you know we've talked about it, it's pretty clear that I have a strong sense that Neil Stevenson was pretty anti-government and libertarian at this phase in his life, too. And, you know, I think he still has those tendencies. And um, but I think he's matured quite a bit because just like essays I've read and other things I've seen, he does seem to have a greater respect for technocrats, you know, that a lot of his protagonists in more recent books are sort of like benevolent technocrats types you know public servants who are trying to do good and are you know competent and that kind of thing and he's also voiced a certain amount of respect for like the value of rule of law too which um you know somebody reading snow crash who wasn't super mature might feel like this world with no laws and too many guns um and burb claves would be kind of a fun place uh to live and Mm -hmm. you know it wouldn't be. uh it would be an awful place to live and
1: i think that's a good place to kind of wrap it up because that's where we mm. started like we started by talking about that very anarcho like oof this is uh this would not be a good place to live even though it is uh fun to read it's about fun, yeah um fun to imagine so um i don't think we're gonna say anything we forgot to talk about because we're we're long already but um uh jp dukes what uh what is next well,
0: Um, Well, maybe we have to edit this out. But what we uh, agreed to at one point was that our next book was going to be The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. And we need to set a date to actually read it and talk about it. Um, But if all goes according to the plan, listener, the next episode will be the first half of Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley.
1: Well, uh, until then, everybody who's listening, uh, we are Upper Middle Brow. Uh, Please, if you have some time, uh, please uh, give us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to this and give us a review. Uh, If you give us a review, we promise we will read it on the air.
0: You can also write me at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com and Chris Bag at b-a-double-g at uppermiddlebrow.com. I haven't registered that yet, but uh, by the time you hear this, hopefully that'll be registered or we'll edit it out that will be a that will be a real place where you could reach us that will be my 15th current email address all right well listeners we'll see you next time on upper middle brow thank you so much for spending this time with us and stop Oh, hey, uh, just wanted to make sure you knew that Upper Middle Brow is a Small Point production. Jesse Dukes and Chris Bag are the hosts, producers, and creators. Thanks to our pilot listeners, including Justin Reich, Catherine Nagasawa, Adam Brock, Robert Lorzell, Jenny Greve, and Josh Lieberlis. The music comes from Ben Pajak and <clears throat> Jesse Dukes. And... Uh, I don't know if you can hear. I am on the West Range of the University of Virginia and it's raining. Maybe you can hear some of the rain sounds. Probably not. Probably what you hear is the HVAC of the Colonnade Club. But uh, I'm looking at a magnolia and a pink and orange crepe myrtle and some ivy in the Virginia fall. See you next time.